Predictions are dangerous. We absolutely need more inventory. The Fed doesn't actually have a lot of tools to regulate inflation. That cash has dried up. Wow, is my first thought, Bruce. If both parties don't win, it doesn't happen. The Real Look. Trending News. G'day. Today is Wednesday, April 19th. I'm Bruce Hardy. And I'm Chase Williams. And this is the news you need to know. As existing home inventory continues to fall, builder confidence is on the rise. According to the National Association of Home Builders and Wells Fargo Housing Market Index, we saw those numbers go up. In fact, in April, home builder confidence in the market for newly built single-family homes rose to an index value of 45, and that was an uptick of one point from the March reading. Now, this is the fourth straight month of increases after a year of decreases. And we reported on that last year, Chase. And just to give our audience some perspective, any time that that score, that index is greater than 50, it indicates that more home builders view conditions as favorable rather than not. So what are your thoughts around this? It makes sense, Bruce. I mean, we have this kind of pervasive challenge with inventory in general, right? So we have lower inventory than there's demand for. And if you're a home builder building new construction, the resale inventory is technically your competitor in a lot of ways, right? So if there's a lot less of that, then things are looking pretty good for you, right? There's just a lot less homes in general to compete with as a builder. And we see that further in this story, Bruce. As a matter of fact, currently one third of housing inventory is new construction compared to historical norms of a little more than 10%. So you go from new constructions normally about 10% and you have 90% competition versus now you're a third, 33% of all the homes available for sale. I have to imagine that that on the heels of some of the lowest confidence we've seen in quite some time from builders last year is lending to some of this uptick. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, certainly it is for the builders. Anytime confidence is building in our industry in any particular area, I think it's a slight win, at least for the rest of us. It was interesting. Alicia Huey, the NAHB chairman, said in a statement that builders note that additional declines in mortgage rates to below 6% will price in further demand for housing. Nonetheless, the industry continues to be plagued by building material issues, including lack of access to electrical transformer equipment. So again, even though it's a great market for the builders, they're still struggling, right, with getting the resources and the supplies to continue building. I think what's really fascinating, Chase, is even though 30% of home sales now are new construction, and that's improving, home builders are still offering incentives to bolster those sales, right? And in fact, last month, 59% of home builders said that they'd offered an incentive compared to 57% in February. However, that number is still lower than the 62% of home builders who reported that they offered incentives in December. It's a conflicting sort of story. An improvement in confidence is different than taking specific action to get those homes sold, right? And part of that confidence is an outlook into the future versus some of the metrics that you just shared, which is the incentives that are being offered now. And just like a lot of things, Bruce, it's typically challenging in business to turn things off and on immediately. So some of these decisions like offering incentives back in December, even though it's slightly less, 
when the consumer gets used to those things being offered, it's hard just to take them away all of a sudden. So I'm sure that's part of the process that they go through, even as their confidence in the future continues to grow. The parent company of Fathom Realty just borrowed $3.5 million from an existing investor. They claim that it'll give the company more resources as it seeks cash flow profitability by the third quarter of this year. And in fact, that $3.5 million will be at a rate of 8% on a convertible note. What do you think of this? Well, I think the word seek is pretty critical to this conversation, Bruce. And it's also a challenge in the market that we're currently in considering some of the headwinds. So just to put this amount in perspective, they borrowed $3.5 million. Well, they lost $10 million, 9.9 to be precise, just in the fourth quarter alone. So it's no doubt that they likely need some of this cash in order to continue to sustain the losses that they're experiencing, because even in their own communication, they're not expecting that loss to stop either in the first quarter or the second quarter of this year. So it makes sense, right? If you're anticipating a further loss and your cash reserves are getting low to go and borrow money to make sure it's on hand to continue to operate isn't an uncommon thing for a business of this size to do. The question still remains that just because they're seeking, will they actually find cash flow profitability by Q3 or will this be an opportunity for them to go and find additional capital? I agree with you. And I think obviously one of the things that prompted this, and this was according to their 2022 annual report to investors, Fathom Holdings finished the year with $8.3 million in cash. And that was down from $37.8 million at the end of 2021. Now, all of that wasn't losses, right? They did spend money on stock repurchases to the tune of about $6 million, another $4 million in technology and business investments, and then $3 million for acquisitions. I think that this is pretty fascinating. Their concern, right, this was a quote from the company in their March report, and they said, we anticipate that our existing balances of cash and cash equivalents and future expected cash flows generated from our operations will be sufficient to satisfy our operating requirements for at least the next 12 months. Here's what I hear, Bruce, when I hear you read that. Thank you, by the way, is we have just enough cash to satisfy 12 months of burn rate before we're out again. (laughs) And by the way, again, in a market with a lot of headwind, it's optimistic to say the least. And I think to be fair, Bruce, their goal in the long run, Fathom, is to Mm -hmm. kind of build an end-to-end real estate services platform, right? And we've talked at length about what end-to-end is on this podcast and the different players that are seeking to create that end-to-end. And I think fairly so. Here's the challenge. It does take a long time. It does take a lot of money. And so if you're pursuing that from a position of not being profitable, there's a much higher risk than pursuing that long-run goal of end-to-end while being profitable. Those are two very different pathways for potentially getting there, right? Hence, we see this need to borrow additional capital to continue down that pathway. It's certainly a bold move with a lot of risk. And we know, Chase, because we're in that game as well, right, as a company to chase that end-to-end holy grail, so to speak. And what we do know is it costs a lot of money. And again, all bets are off, right, when it comes to what the market's going to do over the next 12 months. In fact, I was reading this morning that Jamie Dimon, right, the head of JP Morgan, 
largest bank in the country is concerned about us going into recession in the third or fourth quarter of this year. So it's going to be an interesting time. They got to do what they got to do, right? I think it's smart to realize, okay, we got to get ahead of this before actually we're out of money and we need to try and borrow money then. It's going to be a challenge. And it's not just for them. It's going to be a challenge for a lot of companies, particularly in the public arena right now, because their stock is depressed by what's going on in the market. Well, Berkshire Hathaway Home Service Affiliates and Home Services Franchise Affiliates, their Home Services of America and the Long and Foster companies have actually filed a motion to compel arbitration in the Merle Agent Commission case, named after its lead plaintiff. In fact, the plaintiffs in the case, which was filed in 2019, allege that the National Association of Realtors and brokerages such as Remax, Keller Williams, Anywhere, and Home Services have engaged in a conspiracy by mandating the NAR's buyer broker commission rule when listing a property on an MLS. Now, attorneys for Cohen Milstein argue that the conspiracy has saddled home sellers with a cost that would be borne by the buyer in a competitive market. I'm going to quote him here. Moreover, because most buyer brokers will not show homes to their clients where the seller is offering a lower buyer broker commission or will show homes with higher commission offers first, sellers are incentivized when making the required blanket non-negotiable offer to procure the buyer's broker's compensation by offering a high commission. So, Chase, this is an interesting case, and we've talked about this already on this podcast, but what are your thoughts about that? Well, I have a lot of thoughts around this, Bruce. I think this is going to be a hot topic of conversation in our industry, already is, and will likely stay that way until there's some sort of resolution one way or the other, right? There's some fear out there in the marketplace that this could completely change the way that we're paid from one side of the transaction. And although it could, there's still a lot of things that would need to happen in order for that to actually impact to that degree. One of the thoughts I have, Bruce, is there's this idea, and even in the statement you just shared, that buyer brokers won't show homes to their clients where the seller's offering a lower commission. I say pooey on that, and I'll tell you why. We are not the gatekeepers of what's available in inventory anymore, nor are we the determiners of what our clients want to go see based on their wants and needs. The internet fixed all of that a long time ago. What happens is we are in a very information-rich marketplace, meaning that the majority of the information we have as realtors is actually available to the public through portals like Zillow and all the rest, right? Even though that the commission might not be shared If your client calls and says, I saw this perfect house that just came on the market, they're going to go and see it regardless of what's being offered to you as a buyer broker, right? The other thing that I take issue with, if you really want my opinion, is there's this idea that these commissions are non-negotiable, and that could not be farther from the case. You and I own brokerages, so we get the opportunity to see the commission that's paid out on both sides of the transaction over thousands of transactions. And oh, by the way, there's an average that works out as there always is. But the fact that it's non-negotiable is not true because majority of them are negotiable and they're all different, right? Based on the agent, based on the seller. I take a little bit of issue with the fact that somehow there's some conspiracy going on when everything's already being negotiated. Not all the commissions offered are the same. And buyers truly do have access to the majority of information we have access to as well. Yeah. I think what else is interesting there, Chase, and and I love what you just said, because it prompted a thought in my mind. 
the sellers are having to position their home competitively in the market. Now, that competitively includes sales price or list price. It also includes condition of the property. If they're offering compensation, by the way, we've seen this in different markets will dictate whether or not sellers have to offer closing costs, home warranties, a whole slew of incentives, right, in order to get their home sold. So I think this is sort of a one-dimensional deal. But what I find fascinating about this story, right, in terms of what home services has done is according to their motion to compel, certain unnamed class member executed arbitration agreements in this motion in connection with the sale of their home. Each agreement delegates gateway or threshold issues of arbitrability to the arbitrator through a specific delegation clause. So let me read this. The unnamed class members who signed a form of listing agreement identified in Appendix A are now subject to the jurisdiction of the court as a result of the order certifying this action as a class action. In other words, due to the language used in home services listing agreements, every homeowner who sold their home through the brokerage between March 6th of 2015 and December 31st of 2020 is entitled to independently arbitrate their own case. So what we do know, Chase, is there are a lot of different listing agreements out there, Mm -hmm. right? So I think it's fascinating that the plaintiffs are thinking, oh, we're just going to wrap everybody up into one big bundle and go after the deep pockets and look for the cash. Well, that's exactly what's happening, Bruce, because again, we know, and anyone listening to this podcast likely knows that all of the decision-making and negotiating is done at the kitchen table between individual agent and individual home seller. It's not the Keller Williams, the Home Services, the National Association of Realtors that is having any of those face-to-face, belly-to-belly conversations with the home seller. However, those are the companies and organizations thought of as having the deep pockets, and the class action status is thought of as the best and easiest way to get to the pockets, right? So it is definitely a, a big story in our industry, and we'll have to continue to monitor it regardless of how we feel about it. Yeah, you and I aren't attorneys, and we unfortunately won't get to decide this particular case. One other thing I wanted to share, in this shifting and uncertain housing market, conditions are still proving to be a challenge for Redfin. In fact, the brokerage just laid off another 201 employees, which was about 4% of its total workforce. Now, this is the third round of layoffs since last June, when they cut 470 employees, or roughly 8% of the staff, and then again, In November, they reduced their staff count by 860 people, or roughly 13% of their staff that they had. It's important to note, right, there have been a lot of people who've come in and looked at real estate and said that they could disrupt this industry with a new and different model. By the way, this has been in a market where we've seen 10 plus years of high and to the right, where it's been growing. And yet it's fascinating to watch what's happening to these companies as we go in the shifted market. Obviously, I feel for the employees, Bruce, like it's always a sad thing and a challenging thing and a legitimate thing when you're getting laid off, regardless of the reason. So, you know, my thoughts go out to them. I do want to appreciate Redfin in the midst of some really tough decision making for offering a solid severance package and some health care for several months for those that are terminated. I think that that's important. But you know what it makes me think of, Bruce, is that employees almost rarely care if the company they work for is making money or not until it matters. And that's what we're seeing here, right? So 
you know, when you think about in 2022, Redfin recorded a net loss of 321.1 million, despite a 19% year-over-year increase in their revenue to 2.284 billion. So they're losing money hand over fist. And again, the employees don't seem to care about that in any company until all of a sudden there's not enough money to continue to pay you and you got to go looking for work, right? So it's just one of those things, Bruce, that it's challenging to disrupt, number one. It's very challenging to disrupt in a market that's experiencing a lot of headwinds for everybody, both the traditionals, if you will, and the disruptors. So it's almost like a double whammy for some of these companies. It was already hard enough, and now all of a sudden the brakes have been put on the industry a little bit, so it makes it that much harder. So it'll be interesting to see again, Bruce, just like the story we shared around Fathom, if Redfin can work toward not losing $300 plus million in a full year and then move on with their plans for disrupting the industry and continuing to grow their brand. That's a really hard thing to do. That's the news you need to know. Don't miss this Friday's Northern Lights episode where we'll interview Zach Lazo with the Caliber Group in Seattle, Washington. Thanks again for tuning in with us on The Real Look. This podcast is produced by Marissa Frost. Visit kwnwr.com to access the show notes from today's episode. Head over to Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcast to subscribe to The Real Look. And don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with a breakdown of all things real estate.